0: Um, Turn over to Romans chapter 8, Romans chapter 8, and today we have, obviously we have communion, so we'll be uh, sharing our communion time in a few moments after our message this morning. Uh, But this morning we're starting a new section in Romans, actually, um, beginning down there, verse 18, and we're going to finish up verse 17, where we left off uh, last time, and uh, you know, just way of introduction. um, I think every Christian, those of us who know the Lord, obviously live in that hope of um, glory to come one day, right? I mean, the idea that we're going to be in his presence, uh, free from sin, free from the presence of sin, and totally glorified and, and perfect in every way. That is definitely something to look forward to. First John chapter 3, verse 2 says this, When Christ shall appear, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. That's truly a hope that the believer has. Uh, even David, the psalmist, says in Psalm 17, verse 15, I will behold thy face in righteousness. I shall be satisfied when I awake with thy likeness. See, our great hope as believers is to be in heaven, in God's presence, and to be like Christ. Because we know if that's going to happen, then we're not going to be like ourselves anymore. We're not going to be sinful. We're not going to be imperfect. We're going to be totally uh, uh, Christ-like in every way. And the theme of our text this morning here, beginning in like verse 17, all the way to the end of the chapter. We're not going to get through all this, obviously. We're just hitting a couple verses today. But is our hope of such a glory. That's really what this speaks of. It speaks of that future glory that we have. It's probably one of the greatest chapters in the Bible speaking to the security of those who have trusted Christ for their salvation. The idea that you are saved. And it's not based on your own works. It's not based on your own deeds. It's not based on your own personality. It's not based on who you are. It's based on who God is. And in that we find security. And so just in way of of review, just so we understand, Romans 8 really focuses on the Spirit of God, the Holy Spirit of God. And he really begins for the very first verse to confirm to us that there's no condemnation for those that are in Christ. Uh, That is a blessed hope. That is something that we hold on to every day because I don't know about you, but I feel condemnation almost daily. You know, when you don't do what God has instructed you to do, or you're disobedient in some way, or you fall into sin, or whatever it might be, you know, there's condemnation heaped upon you. And it's good to come back here and to recognize that in Christ there is now no condemnation before God. And that's not because of who we are once again. It's because we have been justified by faith through Christ, and that we're given the righteousness of Christ. And because of that, there's no condemnation. And, you know, you can lay your head on your pillow at night knowing that there is no condemnation if you have trusted in Christ. Uh, And he does that by freeing us from our sin, by enabling us to fulfill God's law. We've gone through this before. Changing our nature in verses 5 to 11 of this this chapter here, chapter 8. He talks about empowering us for victory. The Spirit does in verses 12 to 13. And then last week, for two weeks, we talked about uh, confirming our adoption as sons of God. And so it's, we, we come to this kind of uh, almost apex in the chapter here. And it's, it's really something that the Spirit does in our lives that He guarantees our heavenly glory. The Holy Spirit guarantees our glory. And um, he says that in a lot of places. But turn with me over to Ephesians. Ephesians chapter 1. Just real quick. Ephesians chapter 1. And it tells us in Ephesians chapter 1 over and over again as you kind of look through this chapter. We're obviously not going to go through this, just too much there. But when you stop and you read through that chapter, you're going to see that, you know what? It says that the Spirit is a down payment, right? He's our down payment. Uh, He's the first installment. He's what's referred to as an engagement ring. Uh, He's the guarantee of our eternal glory. And if you read through that chapter, you're going to see very clearly that, wow, we are guaranteed something in Christ. This isn't a hit or miss kind of deal. This is something that we are secure in Christ because the Spirit of God takes up residence in us and it's that down payment. He's that guarantee. Um, and when you go back to Romans chapter 8, you see verses 17 through 30, you see this same theme over and over emphasized. It's the, that work that the Holy Spirit does in securing our salvation. And he really goes into, Paul goes into aspects of how the Holy Spirit does just that. How he makes this opportunity for us to, to be in a, a state of no condemnation before God. And he explains that. Because, see, it's in that state, it's in that, that in Christ, that relationship that we have, having our sins forgiven, that we enjoy the freedom from sin's dominion in our, in our lives, We enjoy the ability to fulfill the law of God, the desire to do the mind of of Christ, the things of the spirit and not the things of the flesh, the power to overcome, overcome the deeds of the flesh and the sense of belonging to God as his own beloved children, sons of God. That's our position, that's our place, that's our relationship in Christ that we have with God our Father. And all those confirmations are given to us in this text in Romans through the work of the Spirit. Um, he kind of sums it up all the way down there in, in verse 30. If you look at the end of the chapter, i give you a little glimpse. He says, And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. See, it's very important to understand that whoever is justified, whoever is made right with God through Jesus Christ, will be glorified. There's no second guess. There's no uh, second chance. You will be glorified. That is guaranteed. And that's what Jesus meant when he said in John chapter 6, verse 39, and this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose, what? Nothing of all that he has given me, meaning the Father, but raise it up on the last day. See, there's no salvation, beloved, without glorification. There can't be. Because if you're not a glorified being, you're not going to be in heaven. That's the only way that we can inherit that that place, that we can be transformed, that we are are changed, the Bible says. And when you think of our salvation, we often think of it as, as something that happened in the past. You know, when were you saved? Oh, I was saved back. But we fail to understand that, you know what, there's different tenses of our salvation. Surely we were saved before the foundations of the world when God chose us to be in him. But when we made that profession of faith in Christ, we started the sanctifying, saving process that God works in our lives each and every day. But there's also a future tense to our salvation. And a person's salvation will not be complete. It will not be real unless that future tense of glorification is realized. Now, there's some people, some Christians, well-meaning people, they claim that a, that, that a Christian, somebody who puts their faith and trust in Christ, can become saved, and then they can lose their salvation. And they're, they, they say they forfeit their future glorification. You know, I, I've read through the Bible and tried to look at different angles of this. Um, it's just not possible. It's not possible to lose something that God has secured in your life. It's not possible because we inherit, you know, inerrant, in, the, in, the, in the truth of salvation is the guarantee of that future glory. It's all one deal. It's not like you get saved and then hopefully, if you're good enough, one day you'll be glorified. That's why when we look at verses like Philippians chapter one, verse six, Paul can say with confidence, I am confident of this very thing that what he who began, he God began, what a good work in who, in you, in me. And you know what? He will perfect that until the day of Christ Jesus. It doesn't say we will perfect it. It says he will perfect it. He is doing that work. It's not us. And see, if he is doing the work, then we have to realize that, you know what? We're not greater than God. And if God is going to save us, he is going to save us. Um, so we, we look at Romans eight twenty-nine, the verse before, the one I just read. For those whom he foreknown, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. See, before you were even saved, God planned to save you and to conform you into the image of Christ. And then you follow up with, with verse 30. It just totally makes sense. That all will be glorified, those who are in Christ Jesus. No one slips through God's fingers. You know, last night we were giving out candy and, and um, getting toward the end of the night there. And I had a bowl of candy and I thought, oh, this is not going to be good. You know, the grandkids enjoy it when they come. But anyway, um, so they said, well, how much can I take? I said, oh, yeah, take a handful. And this one kid goes, a handful? Okay. And he reached in. He pretty much grabbed everything, right? I'm like, hey, wait a minute, you know. And, and so he grabbed one hand. And, and as he was putting it in the bag, you know, there was candy falling all over the porch, right? And all the other kids are, you know, scrambling to get it. Um, that's not going to happen with us. It's not like God is saying, hey, I'm going to try to save everybody, but, you know, a couple may get away, you know, like that fish that got away, you know. It's not going to happen. From predestination to calling to justification to glorification, he, God, completes that work. I don't know about you, but I I sleep well at night realizing that truth. Because glorification means this. You might be asking, well, what does it mean to be glorified? Glorification simply means complete complete deliverance from sin complete deliverance from sin now positionally god has kind of delivered us from sin in our standing before him we're justified we're declared righteous but you know what we deal with sin every day sin still is part of our lives and it will be until we leave this earth either in a box or in the air and you know what once we do if we're trusting in christ for our salvation in that second that we leave. The Bible says that we will be in the presence of God himself, in the presence of our Lord and Savior. And so complete in every sense. That occurs when we enter into the presence of the Lord. We are made perfect like our Lord Jesus Christ himself. See, that's the goal of our salvation. You know, the goal of our salvation isn't to make us happy and wealthy and that's not the goal of our salvation. The goal of our salvation is that we are saved for that final glorification process that will take place. And we have to be reminded of that. We have to be reminded that salvation has a purpose. And it's glorification. And so glorification, when that happens, it, it completes the reality of our salvation. We'll finally realize what it will be like to be in God's Presence for all eternity. And so we have to stop and remind ourselves that, you know, the purpose of the Holy Spirit, He's confirming that truth to us every day as we live down here on this sin filled, stained earth. We need to be re- reminded that, you know what, this is not our home. There's a place that awaits for us. This is just kind of a, a temporary situation here. And we can put our hope and our trust in that truth. That's really what, look at verse, uh, Romans chapter 8, verse 24. He says, for in this hope we were saved. What hope is he talking about? He says, now the hope that is seen is not hope, for who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. See, we grow in patience. We grow impatient at times, and that's what this text is going to get into eventually, probably in the coming weeks. We'll look at this, that not only are we groaning for this glorification process to be complete, but even creation is groaning. (laughs) Creation is saying, come on, God, get on with it. I'm tired of dealing with these weeds and the sin and everything. I want you to complete this process. You know, we're looking forward to the new heaven, the new earth. See, man was created originally in whose image? God's image. He had a glorious beginning. And he was honored and he was respected. He was without sin. He fellowshiped with God. The Bible says when man sinned, he lost his glory, he lost his dignity, he lost his honor, he lost the beauty. That was his in creation. That's why Romans 3.23 says that we come, what, short, right, of the glory of God. Why do we? Because of sin. I mean, we all know instinctively that we are devoid of glory. We know that we're not glorified yet. We don't have to, you know, that's, that's kind of common sense. Um. That's why a lot of people today in our society are so caught up with self-esteem. They, 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 they spend tremendous amounts of money and effort seeking self-satisfaction, trying to gain respect. You're reminded of Rodney Dangerfield, you know, I can't get no respect. You know, that's how the whole world feels. And so they manufacture fake respect. You you heard that that void in somebody's heart. That's what it is. And so in his quest for glory, he fills himself with ambition and pride and jealousy. He tries to rise above others in society. But he can't regain that former glory. Post-fall man cannot know pre-fall glory here in this world. But in Christ... One day, that glory will be restored. One day, we who are Christians will be transformed, the Bible says. That we will fully reflect God's glory and will be found in his likeness. We will be like Christ. We won't return to Eden, but you know what? We'll go beyond Eden for perfection. It's going to be a wonderful, wonderful blessing that day. Martin Lloyd-Jones observed this. He said, salvation cannot stop at any point short of this entire perfection. It can't stop short of that. So you can't start the process of salvation and, and somehow fall short and, well, okay, well, he was saved, but he didn't make it to glorification. No. If you're saved, if Christ has convicted you of your sin and you've trusted in him and him alone and the work of christ on calvary for the forgiveness of your sin then you know what you will be glorified one day and that's what romans 8 really speaks to man in christ is reserved for glory that's his destiny if you're in christ Matter of fact, at the end of the chapter, it's kind of exciting because he he gets to a point where he's just kind of overflowing with information. And he says, you know what? Nothing can separate us from the love of God that we have in Christ Jesus. No one will be able to condemn us. Who's going to lay a charge against God's elect? It's God who justifies. He glorifies there's no such thing as salvation without glorification. Second Corinthians chapter three verse 18, says this: "We all with unveiled face, nothing hindering our, our vision, in other words, beholding as in a mirror, the glory of the Lord are changed into the same image, from glory to glory, even as the spirit of our Lord." That's 2 Corinthians 3:18. As we gaze at the glory of God, the glory of the Lord, we are changed into that same image. One level of glory to the next. And see, while we're here on earth, the Holy Spirit's taking us through these phases, through these different levels of glory, through sanctification. He lifts us up by restoring our dignity. And little by little, we look at the glory of the Lord and the Spirit restores that honor eventually. That we lost in the fall. It's a constant work. When we see Christ, we will reflect his glory fully. Salvation is a path to glory. And once you begin on that path, you have to come to its end. Because that's the essence of salvation for which we were saved. Glorification. But there's a problem. (laughs) The problem is this. The path to glorification is through suffering. So now that I got you all pumped up, (laughs) it's like taking a pin and go. you know. Not really. Because even suffering is the work of God in our lives. But let's look at the problem of suffering. And it's kind of good because we're talking about the Lord's suffering through our communion time. Why would Paul, I mean, he's kind of on this, you know, rampage well, it was it's gonna be great and then all of a sudden he introduces this idea of suffering why would he do it at this point is this kind of like raining on everybody's parade um if we're trying to assure christians that they're really christians and salvation is secure i mean mentioning suffering is probably one of the last things you want to do but he doesn't he does it. he brings it right up um there's a lot of different books on suffering. There's a lot of different books that Christians write on suffering and probably one of the the most popular uh, books over the um, years that have been written um, by Rabbi Kushner. It says when bad things happen to what? Good people. You know, I disagree with his title because there are no good people, but that's beside the point. You know, he, he addressed a, a subject. Um, and as Christians, we acknowledge the, the, the problem of suffering. And sometimes we even wrestle with it. But I don't think that we would necessarily think of presenting it as a proof, suffering that is, as a proof that somebody's a child of God. I don't know if we'd go there. That's what Paul does. He drags up this subject here. And I think, first of all, because he was a realist. He was a realist. He was an evangelist. He was a pastor. He knew what the people were going through. He knew the people to whom he was writing this letter. And the early ministers of the gospel began to suffer for the gospel as soon as they began to obey the Lord's great commission. I mean, it was immediate. Peter and John were jailed. Stephen was killed. Paul himself was imprisoned, he was beaten, he was shipwrecked, he starved, he's threatened, he was exposed to the elements, the Bible tells us. And these are all these early preachers who became followers of Christ. They were ridiculed, they were hated, they were abused, and eventually they were martyred for their faith. And they were done so in great, it was done so in great numbers. In addition to that, they endured many disappointments, they endured many deaths, Disasters All the things that come from a sinful and fallen world They experienced And when you read through the New Testament With suffering in mind You'll be, you'll be startled to discover How It's all over the place This isn't a health, wealth And you know Good life kind of book It's a real book That's why Jesus in John 16, 33 says what? In this world, you will have trouble. You're gonna have trouble. Most of the New Testament epistles have an important discussion about suffering. Suffering is as common to God's people today as it was in the New Testament times. We need to understand that. Because I think if we don't understand that premise, sometimes when we're enduring suffering, we can begin to believe the enemy that, wow, there's something wrong in my life. No, no. Maybe everything's right in your life. It's true that most of us do not experience this special kind of suffering we call persecution today. However, I think there's going to be a time in America where we will be persecuted for our faith. But right now in all parts of the world, brothers and sisters in Christ are being persecuted. They're being murdered. They're being killed. They're being raped and pillaged because of their faith in Christ. We suffer when we lose a husband, a wife, or some other family member through death. That's suffering. We grieve when life itself or the friends or children disappoint us. We feel that pain, that trauma, that sickness. We're hurt by things like prejudice and poverty. Sometimes lack of rewarding work. Just feel like, "Ah, you know, what's the use? I mean, you can go on and on with different lists. But see, Paul was a realist. And it caused him to bring up this subject because it's kind of like the elephant in the room. So I think the second reason Paul brought this up at this point was that he was aware of this simple fact that many non-Christians were approaching suffering and the idea of suffering in a different way. And he wanted to bring it up and show them what's the biblical way, what's the Christ-like way to deal with it. And so when we begin here, we want to see, well, what are some ways that non-Christians deal with suffering? Well, first of all, people get angry. (laughs) When they suffer or their family suffers... They get angry. It's very common for unbelievers to get angry when they're going through suffering. They try to blame others or God for their misfortunes. Unfortunately, that's even true of some Christians. And they blame God because they think that somehow God hasn't done something for them or he's done something to them. And they're resentful. So anger is a very common way that a non-believer and even some Christians would respond to suffering. And we forget that Jesus has not promised us an easy life here. That's not what he promised us. Jesus didn't promise us the fulfillment of all of our desires here on earth. He has called us to what? Discipleship. The glory is to come. But life here is tough. So some people get angry. Some people will avoid avoidance. The path before them looks hard or even undesirable. Some people will turn from it and try to find another way that's easier, more rewarding. Or sometimes if the path can't be avoided, they'll try to balance it out with other things that are maybe more attractive, so then their priorities get all out of whack. The ancient name for this approach is called hedonism. (laughs) The Christian form of it is to ask God to remove the undesirable thing, whether it's sickness, financial struggles, whatever it might be. Christians who take this approach think the correct way to ask God is to remove the sickness so that afterward they might praise him for the healing. That could be a wonderful thing. And sometimes it is God's will for him to heal and for him to get that glory. So I'm not saying it's wrong to ask, but we have to understand that what if it's God's will that you deal with that sickness? What if it's God's will that he allows that into your life for a purpose, for a reason? Um, a lot of times when you, when you talk about Christians and their approach to suffering, it's, it's, it's very um, misunderstood because uh, so much... Counseling and so much on the Christian side focuses on our individual fulfillment, our individual happiness. Personal happiness is priority. So if you go to see a counselor and you're talking to them, you know, your goal is to make yourself happy, to to make everything good. And so they try to do that. Sometimes people are advised to do things, do whatever, whatever it takes to make you happy, just do it. But you know what? That ignores the real truth that that comes by working through these hardships and these times of suffering rather than avoiding them. Sometimes it may be God putting something in your path so that you have to deal with it, so you have to rely on him, so that he can grow you through that. And maybe down the road he's going to have you minister to somebody with the same problem you have, but because you've gone through it and you've gone through it with the right perspective, that you can down the road minister to somebody else who's at the stage you were at before going, Oh, no, what do I do? Well, the third way, not just anger and avoidance, but apathy. The third non Christian approach is apathy. In other words, they just detach from the problem. Some people say, well, oh, it just doesn't matter. Think about something else, don't focus on it. Um, you know, keep a stiff upper lip. Paul was surrounded by these stoic kind of people. A lot of non Christian philosophies were around in Paul's day, just as they are today. And so I think Paul introduced the subject of suffering here to counter some of these. See, for our part, we need to know that these approaches are all less than truly Christian. And we need to come to understand that suffering may just be able to be seen in a different light. We need to know that for the Christian, for the believer, those who have trusted in Christ, suffering is in the arena in which we are to prove the reality of our profession in Christ and achieve spiritual victories. It's so important that we understand that glory only comes through suffering. Well... Secondly here, proof of sonship. I think it also shows us the value of suffering because it shows us that we are his. Um, The first reason Paul here is he's been talking about Christians here being sons and daughters of God. Now he speaks of suffering as a proof of that relationship. That through the suffering, there could be different forms First of all, persecution. Some suffer in the form of persecution. Jesus taught in Matthew five chapter, uh, verses eleven to twelve Blessed are those Blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Notice it says because of me. If you're out there in the world acting like an idiot and people are insulting you and persecuting you and saying all kinds of false things, maybe the false things happen to be true and maybe you deserve some of the, the, uh, you know, the insults that you're getting. But if you're living a Christ-like life and it's because of your Christ-likeness that they are doing these things, he says, rejoice and be glad because great is your reward in heaven For in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Okay, they're going to do the same to you. John chapter 15, verse 18 to 20. Once again, in the upper room, Jesus is closing down his ministry here on earth. And he has his disciples with him. He says, if the world hates you, keep in mind that it hated me first. If you belong to the world, it would love you as its own. As it is, you do not belong to the world, but I have chosen you out of the world. That is why the world hates you. Remember the words I spoke to you. No servant is greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will persecute you also. Two points here. First of all, Jesus suffered. Suffering was his lot while he was here on earth. And it's been a lot for a lot of godly people down throughout the ages. They lived a life of suffering. Why? Because we're living in a sinful world. So first of all, Jesus suffered. Secondly, suffering proves that we are on the side of Jesus and these godly people that went on before us. You know, John MacArthur had this quote and I just wanted to read it for you because it kind of depicts the modern day mentality when it comes to church. And it seems like modern day churches are trying to become more like the world. So the world will like them. So they want them to feel comfortable and just, you know, everything's about, you know, reaching out and and all that. He says this. I can't for the life of me understand how Christians ever got the idea that the idea that the plan for the church was to get the whole world to like them. Nothing could be further from the truth. And we... We do what we're supposed to do in confronting the ungodly world with the saving gospel of Jesus Christ. Either they will believe it or they will become antagonized. See, we're not here to please the world. We're not here so that we don't meet here on Sunday so that those who haven't trusted Christ will feel comfortable and want to come back. That's not the purpose here. The purpose is to point them to the Savior. Jonathan Chao, one of the pastors and president of Christ college, he, he does a lot of research. And he does a lot of research of um, the persecuted church in China. And he said this, one can almost say that suffering for Christ is a mark of discipleship. That's their mentality over there. Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones says this, When he speaks of Romans 8, 17, he says, If you are suffering as a Christian, and because you are a Christian, it is one of the surest proofs you can ever have of the fact that you are a child of God. That's very important for us to understand. That's an important use of persecution. It proves that we are Christians, and therefore disciples of Christ. Secondly, it has the purpose of purification. Not all suffering is in the form of of persecution. Some of it is from God, and it's for our own spiritual growth. It's for our own purification. Hebrews chapter 2, verse 10. This is where the author of Hebrew was talking about when he wrote in, in reference to Jesus. He says, For it was fitting that he, for whom and by whom all things exist, in bringing many sons to glory should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. Hebrews 2.10. I mean, that sounds like a bold thing to say, because it's kind of like, well, Jesus was already perfect. Why did he have to be made perfect? You know, and that's one of those things that's hard to understand, because the Bible does say that Jesus did grow in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and man. But he was morally impeccable. But suffering had a purpose in his life. See, perfection means wholeness. Jesus grew into a a wholeness of experience in trusting God through his life here on earth. And he did that through poverty, through temptation, through misunderstanding, through loneliness, through abuse, through betrayal. God used all those things in the life of his son while he was here on earth. Now, we're sinners, of course. We're not Christ-like yet. But one of the images the Bible uses in Zechariah and Malachi, Zechariah thirteen nine says, And I will put this third into the fire and refine them as one refined silver and test them as gold is tested. They will call upon my name, and I will answer them. I will say, They are my people, and they will say, The Lord is my God. That's Zechariah thirteen nine. And the picture there is God as this, this skilled refiner, and he's heating up the ore until the dross has been mixed with it and it rises to the surface. And then he scrapes it off. And the refiner in that process knows when the metal is ready because he can look into the metal, the molten metal itself and see the reflection of his face. And he realizes that all the gunk is out of the way now. See, it's the same way. God purifies us until he can see the face of his son, the Lord Jesus Christ, in his people. That's what he's doing each and every day in our lives. You know, we sing that, that hymn, How Firm a Foundation. I was doing some research this week. I didn't know that they didn't know who wrote that hymn. When you look at it, I mean, Keen is usually the name, but it just says, author, uncertain, K. <laughs> because there's so many different stories of who wrote it. But one of the verses of that hymn says this, When through fiery trials thy pathway shall lie, my grace all-sufficient shall be thy supply. The flame shall not hurt thee, I only design thy dross to consume and thy gold to refine. See, that's an image that God has given us in his word, that he is refining us. Also in Hebrews chapter 12, another image here is God disciplining his children as one a father disciplines his child here on earth. It says, endure hardship, Hebrews 12, verse 7, 8, and 10 to 11. Endure hardship as discipline. God is treating you as sons. For what son is not disciplined by his father? If you are not disciplined and everyone undergoes discipline, then you are illegitimate children and not true sons. He's purifying us. And then the third thing here is training. A third kind of suffering also has value for Christians. It can be likened to suffering endured when a soldier who is trained for combat enters into the battle itself. And scripture uses that. In 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 3, Paul wrote to Timothy, endure hardship, endure hardness with us as a good soldier of Christ Jesus. In 1 Corinthians chapter 9, he changes the imagery a little bit, and he moves from the athletic, or he moves from the soldier to the athlete. And he says, I beat my body, 9.27, 1 Corinthians, Paul says, I beat my body to make it a slave so that after I have preached to others, I myself will not be disqualified for the prize. See, if you're called to endure any of these three kinds of suffering, you should be encouraged. This is a good thing, because by them, you are actually adding validity to your salvation. Well, the next thing here, the power of the Christian witness. One of the other values of suffering is our our witness to Christ is empowered by the suffering we go through. Um, Now, you know, I I don't mean that we, we grow stronger in our ability to witness to Christ to the extent that we are called to endure persecution or some other kind of suffering. Um, however, that's true. But when you read about the blind man in Rome or in uh, John chapter nine, if you read that story of the blind man, his witness grew stronger and stronger every time the religious authorities kind of leaned on him to get him to modify his testimony about what happened to him. And so, that witness of Christians it carries a particular weight when it is given under duress. You know, I'm sure that we would hang on every word if Pastor Zaid were here this morning and and to share Christ with us and to share his testimony. Why? Because he's endured three years of suffering for Christ. We would want to know, man, how did you get through this? And that's that's so important. So physical suffering gives particular clout even to the witness of Christians. You know, it's amazing to me over the years has been the bedside of many people who are at the end of their life. And there's something about being there when they know that they are secure in Christ. And even though their body's wracked with pain and the uncertainty of even opening their eyes within the next hours, deep down inside there's a joy. There's a joy because of the suffering that they've come through and they realize that glory awaits them. What a wonderful thing. And it really helps us when we can tell people, yeah, been there, done that. You know, I, if if I have diagnosed with something, I want to talk to somebody who's been through that. I want, I want to know, how did you deal with this? What were the treatments like? What were, you know, why? I'm not going to talk to somebody who has no idea, that's never been sick a day in their life. That wouldn't help me much. And so suffering has those kind of... Uh, positive things that that happen. And I think that we need to be reminded of that. And then also, it's the path to glory. The final thing here is that it is ordained. Suffering is ordained as the path to glory. He says there in verse 17, we share in his sufferings, It says, and if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him. Some translations say if we suffer with him. It should probably read since we suffer with him because it's a guarantee that we will. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 17 to 18, the Apostle Paul wrote, For our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. So we fix our eyes not on what is seen, but what is unseen. For what is seen is temporary, but what is unseen is eternal. That's 2 Corinthians chapter 4, four seventeen 17 to 18. So there's two basic things here we need to remember about suffering. First of all, suffering is necessary. It's necessary. Luke chapter 24, verse 26. Did not the Christ have to suffer these things and then enter his glory? Jesus taught that for himself. He said that to the Emmaus disciples there. He said, hey, I I have to go through suffering. He was constantly harping on that at the end of his ministry, and they didn't get it. They thought, man, we're going to Jerusalem. Jesus is going to, you know, really take over, and it's going to be great. Well, we went to Jerusalem and here's their Savior hanging on a cross, what happened? Wow, they were despondent. They didn't know what to do because they didn't understand his message up to that point. And Jesus taught over and over that suffering is necessary for us. And when he said, if they persecute me, they'll also persecute you, that's a promise. That's not just a little hint. He says in John 16, 33, I've said these things to you. That in me you may have peace, in the world you will have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. So it's something that is necessary. Secondly, suffering is necessary, but it's not the end of the story. I mean, you know, if we just said, yeah, we just got to suffer, that's it. No. What's the end of the story? Glorification. Being, in Christ, being with Christ and God Forever. I mean, if suffering were the end, Christianity, I mean, would be masochistic. I mean, it would be crazy. Why would you even want to be part of it? If there's no hope, if there's no consolation in the end, the Christian who needs to worry about suffering is not the one who is suffering, particularly if it is for the sake of Jesus Christ. The person who should worry is, is the one who is not suffering. Because suffering is proof of our sonship. It means that for the spread of the gospel, it's the path to glory. So we need to encourage one another as we run this race here on earth and fight these long, hard battles daily with our flesh and with sin and with others and everything else. And we need to realize that as a church, we need each other. And that we need to bind our hearts together. And that is what we are given to. That is what we are saved for. 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 7 and 8. Timothy, Paul writes to Timothy, he says, you know what? I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Now there is in store for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge will award me on that day. And not only to me alone, but also to all those who have longed for his appearing. I pray that prayer that it may be that way for all God's people. Um, there's an illustration from the life of John Newton, the converted slave trader who turned pastor and hymn writer. And uh, he gave this illustration, and I thought it was kind of interesting. He said, Suppose a man going to New York to take possession of a large estate. And his carriage should break down a mile before he got to the city, which obliged him to get out and to walk the rest of the way. What a fool we should think of him if we saw him wringing his hands and blubbering all the way the remainder to the city, the remaining mile, crying out, My carriage is broken, my carriage is broken. When he's about to inherit a huge estate, you would say, what a fool. I mean, just go there and get there and pick the carriage up later. You buy a new carriage, you know, I mean, stop and think about it. In this life, beloved, your carriage may be broken, but keep going, keep going because there's a rich inheritance and eternal glory lies just ahead. Father, we thank you for your word this morning. Lord, we thank you that it's only through the sacrifice of your son, the Lord Jesus Christ, that this inheritance is ever even possible. And Father, we know that beyond a shadow of a doubt, that one day we will be in your presence if we have put our trust, our faith in you. Lord, sometimes it's kind of like maybe watching a sporting event. Maybe you're watching a football game. And if you're watching it live in the third quarter, your team's behind and they fumble the ball and everything's going wrong, you may get depressed. You may begin to worry about your team. You may even think that, you know what, there's no victory here for them. But say you're watching a recorded game and you know the outcome. You know that in the fourth quarter, your team came back and won. <laughs> Miraculously. If you're watching that recorded game, third quarter, your team's behind, you're not going to get depressed. You're not going to get anxious. You're not going to lose hope. Why? Because you know how it ends. See, there's, there's present suffering because we live in a fallen world. But God has promised us future glory. And Lord, as we... Keep in view and keep in mind the suffering that you went through on our behalf on Calvary. Lord, that that makes possible our future glory, our our future salvation. Ultimately, when we can stand in your presence, devoid of sin, perfect in every way, in the likeness of your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Father, that all was made possible through his sacrifice on Calvary. And so, Lord, your word is very clear. When we come to this time as a church that we're called to examine our own hearts or examine ourselves, that we should make sure that our heart is clean and pure before you. And Lord, if it's not, we we simply cry out to you and confess our sin and claim your forgiveness that you've already granted to us. And so, Father, this is a time of self-examination for God's people. If you're here today and you don't know Christ as your Savior, just as the elements are passed a little later on, just pass them by. Nobody's going to be looking or judging you. But, Father, we pray for us as believers that this would be a time that we can reflect on your goodness to us and the gift of salvation you've given to us through Christ. And, Father, we realize that it's never too late for that person to cry out to you, Lord, be merciful to me, a sinner. Father, save me. Save me from my sin. I want to put my faith, my trust in your Son as my Savior. That's a prayer that God will hear even today. We thank you and we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.